Hello there, this is Sarah Ashley with Nerds on Film. Are you tired of walking around topless? Well, I know I am. That's why I went to nerdonomy.com and purchased one of the many humorous t-shirts that we have to offer. Not only does it support our new media endeavor, but it also keeps me from being arrested. Thanks for listening. Many ages ago, in a far-off land, there was a valiant knight by the name of Sir Brian. Sir Brian was called forth upon a town desperate and under siege by an evil dragon. Oh! Oh, help us, Sir Brian! You're our only hope! I'm here, yes, I am Sir Brian of the Bridges of Madison County. Oh, Sir Brian, valiant knight of Bridges of Madison County, won't you ever save us? Of course I shall, I shall, and I shall do it with my sidekick, Norman. Ah, yes, I'll carry things about for mostly, but I can be helpful in the fight. Yes, you are. Yes, indeed. Now, there's only one way we must beat this dragon. Oh, yes. Speed things up a bit. It's a bit toasty. Yes, of, yes, of course, my lady. Yes. Uh, right quick. Oh, uh, my lord, what's the plan, then? There's only one thing we can do. Norman, fetch me the magic dragon dust. Oh, yeah, um... Which one was that again? It's so many... It's the, the dust the, in here. It's the bottle that's labelled... Dragon dust. It's in right. your bag. It's, I put it there two days ago. Oh, what little purple stopper in it? Yes. Yeah, indeed. I'll put that in your coffee this morning. Yeah. What? Well, it's an accident, you say. Well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna urinate on the dragon, am I? Well, it's got the uh, originality. You never done that before. <laughs> Would you uh, like a sword? I've got a sword for you. Yes, fine. I'll throw my sword at it and see if that works. Uh, here we go. You missed! Thank you, my lady! You're in to keep score. Thank you very much. Well, maybe you can just ask the dragon Excuse to kick me. it back th- over th- here. Th- thank you, thank you, Norman. Thank you. Excuse me, Mr. Dragon. Yes, uh, hello. Uh, terribly sorry. Would, could you, uh, I seem to have, uh, got my sword caught into your foot. Could you please kick it, kick it back? Yes. And oh. he actually did it. Oh, right, Mike. He actually did it. He's another blight dragon, aside from all the massacring. He, he is indeed, my lady. Yes, I, I do. I feel almost bad about killing him now. Oh, yeah, but, you know, it's a job. Still burning the village down. <laughs> yes, my lady. Thank you. Just two minutes, please. Gosh, she's impatient. All right. This one's for the kill. You got him there. Good job, my lord. Fair lady. Oh, my hero. Yes, indeed. Please, I humbly ask for your hand. In in marriage. Yes, it's usually how this whole thing goes. Uh, oh, I'm I'm sorry. This this was this was more of a platonic rescue. So, oh, sorry. Right. I, I didn't mean to lead but, but, you this on. This is the third time this month. Oh, uh, I'm yeah. s- I'm sorry. Well, uh, I, I I'll add you on Facebook. Uh, would you settle for a, a cup of coffee? I'm sorry, I, I have to take my yearly bath. Right. Yes, right. but um, it was a pleasure meeting you. You uh, seem like a charming young fellow. Yes, yes, indeed, quite. Um, well, toodaloo. G- goodbye. Goodbye. Well, my lord, um, you did, you know, kill the dragon. That was quite impressive, the, the second yes. time you tried. Yes, yes Norman, I did. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, um, well, we got each other. You know, neither one of us is dead, that's good. Yes, indeed, Norman. We do have each other. And yes. um, I did happen to notice a local brothel on the way into town that doesn't seem to have bound down. Just throwing it out there. So, um, yeah, you want to go? 
Yes, Norman. Yes, I do. And the two ventured forth on to the unburnt-down brothel, one of four still remaining in town. Brian. Brian. Wake up. What? We're waiting. Oh! Sarah's here. We're going to do the show. You're drooling. Sorry. God, that must have been one heck of a dream. Not really. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Eric, how are you, sir? You know, sir, I'm doing uh, quite well. Uh, how was your dream? Was it good? Unfulfilling. Yeah, unfulfilling? Uh, that's yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. Oh. A lot of awkward twitching, though, I noticed. Yeah, well, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. I would say just don't sit so close to me. So. Oh, 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 all right. Um, that was awkward. Okay. <laughs> don't make us weird, guys. <coughs> hey, oh. who's that we're listening oh. to? Hello. Hey, guys. It's Sarah Ashley. Sarah <laughs> Ashley, of course, my co-host from Nerds on Film. I'm just visiting. Don't mind me. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's actually here for a reason, right? Because we wanted to talk about a topic we have, we've been meaning to talk about for a while, but we haven't actually gotten around to. Fast food. Really? No. Oh, I was okay. Well, thank God, because I was prepared for a totally different subject. <laughs> uh, no, uh, you know, obviously, here on the Nerdonomy Network, we have our sister podcast, Nerds on Film. Yes, if you haven't guessed already, uh, Nerds on Film is very much about the subject of film, but we haven't really dove. I know, <laughs> but we haven't really dived into the history of film. Not at all. Now, how it came to be, what was its inspiration? Why are we so obsessed with it now? How does it? truly influence our culture today because it really is it really was when it came out a mind-shattering phenomenon i mean to be able to see moving pictures in front of you was something that to a lot of first movie goers if you will was really shocking was really quite surprising in fact it was actually used originally as a form of magic of 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 stage magic yeah you know it was this cool i mean it was done at the world's fair of course and things like that too but it was this cool look at what we can do you know and visual effects right Simple magic tricks were done with trick photography. So, in and of itself, was very captivating. Right. And honestly, it's something that people have been trying to capture for thousands of years. This has been a desire of people around the world throughout history. Uh, If you jump back as far back as 3200 BCE, back to uh, ancient Iran, so, you know, ancient Babylon and what have you, and the city-states of Babylon, we find a, a clay vessel that was constructed, and on it were five images of a goat. And each image was painted ever so slightly different. And when the vessel itself is then spun, what you end up getting, because all the images were just perfectly placed apart from one another, is the image of a goat that appears to be moving. And it's it's pretty wild to see, even back then, there was this desire to create animation. I did not know that. That's That's really cool. That's fascinating, because you do see some elements of that in pottery throughout history. Never intended to be spun around, right? We, I think of the Magic Lantern, which was more of an innovation in the 19th century right? that would do that. Um, but you really don't see technology like that until almost 5,000 years later, if you think, if you think about it, in the right. late 19th century. So that's pretty crazy. 
yeah, it is pretty amazing that there was this desire, this want for that to happen. And you're right, it wasn't exactly mainstream. You know, when you whenever you see images of pottery with with images of animals on them, don't assume that you should go up them and start spinning them around. Uh, most uh, museum curators will be quite upset if you do that, uh, and most of them won't have the desired effect that you want. Oh, you know, challenge accepted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh no. What have I, thought, I started? I thought when I go to a museum, it says "Do not touch." I think it means touch everything. <laughs> <laughs> do not touch nothing. Touch everything. <laughs> In fact, if you are so inclined lick that over there it's just asking for you <laughs> oh please don't do that yeah no please don't do that that's not a good idea but then i look at china for example and i look at china you know 500 bc where you have some of the very first uh, shadow puppets and shadow play going on right and we've all kind of seen this it's and ironically enough for most people out here in the west it's the movies that have brought those images to us right but we see those images of puppet play and shadow play that were being used to entertain large audiences and you know those first kind of prototype movie theaters if you will just kind of uh, doing a little market analysis for a few thousand years in the future uh, when it would finally become mainstream but uh, yeah there's been this desire for a very very long time to see moving images in front of us. Yeah, indeed. Well, <clears throat> why don't we fast forward a little bit, though, to more the modern era. Right. And by modern, I don't mean contemporary. I mean the late 1800s, the, basically the turn of the century, approximately, where we really start to see the innovation of science start to progress forward, and we get to see film technology pretty rapidly, when you think about it, develop from when you have the first experiments with things like the zoetrope and the stroboscope, or even before that, you know, in the 1820s and 1830s. With when, photography, With yeah. photography, when yeah. it was first really being invented. Yeah, well, photography, though, comes from a scientific phenomenon known as camera obscura, where if you look at uh, a reflection of the sun, you can see a shadow of an object that's nearby it, uh, upside down within the reflection of it. Um, and it was just scientists trying to harness that phenomena uh, into an actual full-on image, and it took them hundreds of years to be able to perfect it. Yeah, creating a camera obscura and just a camera obscura itself is really not that difficult. I mean, that had been going on, you know, since the uh, since the you know ninth and tenth centuries, uh, when you simply just created a small aperture uh, which acted as a natural lens, focusing the light in, and then you know inverting that light so when you know the image that you were looking at as it was projected onto a wall or onto a, a canvas or what have you would actually be upside down. Yeah, the trick, of course, is getting it to actually stay where you want it to show, and that was where. The, the innovation had to take place. You, right. could, you could treat cloth with certain chemicals to get a very, very faded image, but nothing with the crispness of the visage of reality. Yeah, I, I mean, many of those early camera, camera obscuras were oftentimes thought to have been used by the, the famous Dutch masters, you know, these great painters who produced such detailed and accurate pieces of artistic work. And it makes you wonder how could they have done so in the time. Um, just with the power of their own eyes. And many people, it's quite controversial, but many people do suggest that they probably used a camera obscura uh, to really get some of the finest details I don't down. see why that's all that controversial. I mean, you people model for paintings all the time. It's just a similar concept. Really. It is. I mean, look at what we do today when we produce great pieces <clears throat> of art. Very few times do you actually have a, a model sit in front of you for hours and hours and hours on end. It's usually a photography session that goes on first for an hour or so, catching all the right angles, making it just right, so that when you sure. do finally have the time to work, you can work off of, off of photo, uh, photographs. Sure. Now, the other thing I do want to talk about, though, is photography was a little different than we think of it today, of course, because there was no, first off, digital cameras didn't come until the 1960s. Right. Ironically developed by Kodak. <laughs> Invented by Kodak, who, of course, is no longer in business, but was the major American provider for film for right. almost the entire 20th century. 
But the big thing was that still photography used glass originally. It was specially treated glass to capture the image. Uh, and it was very expensive. Right. Glass or metal plates were oftentimes treated with uh, silver nitrate uh, mm-hmm. and other salts and what have you. And they were used to create that light-sensitive chemical reaction. And it would embed itself uh, in said plate or what have you. It was used in astro-astronomy, actually, uh, very, very early on in and around the 1880s and 1890s in a way that, you know, before it became really commercial use uh, of, a, of a much larger scale, it was uh, it was being used as a, as a tool for astronomers even before that. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, George Eastman created the Eastman Kodak Company. Actually, he didn't create it until 1888, but he had developed the, the film technology a few years before that. But his idea was to use celluloid, right? As to use a, a roll and then to capture the film that way. And I guess the advantage of that was, first off, it made the cameras lighter. It made them more portable. And because it made it more portable, it also made it cheaper to produce. Right. And this is, of course, celluloid, not cellulite, which was created in 1818 by the A&W company in, in America. But that's a whole other topic. <laughs> yes, that, that's the <laughs> that thing. That was more of an adverse reaction, <laughs> right. I think, than an intended reaction. That is, that is the bane of, the, of our obese existence. <laughs> I thought I'd do with a farmer named McDonald, but maybe it's just me. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, interesting little side note. Do you know why George Eastman called Kodak Kodak? I have no idea. It was totally invented out of his head. He just wanted a word that started and ended with the letter K. Really? Yeah. That's oddly specific. Why K? So it could have been Klondike. <laughs> and then uh, we would have had Kodak bars. No, because and... it would have had Klondike would have ended with the letter E. Wouldn't have worked. Oh, touche. What I find fascinating, though, is that, I mean, we're talking 1888. Now, do you know when these early cinema cameras, these movie cameras, came into existence. They came into existence in 1888. And, in fact, the very first time that they were used in that method, you know, to, to film, to create a real film, right? So not just a series of photos that were then just kind of spliced together, taken from all different you know angles and different pictures and what have you, but rather in one device, uh, was with uh, Louis Le Prince. And yes, indeed. That was, in, uh, that was in 1888. He was French-born. He was living in England at the time. Uh, he was living with uh, his, his wife's family, and he decided that uh, he would try it out. He would take 10 frames. It would last only two seconds. It was a very, very short production time. And that very first piece of film, uh, which he filmed in the location in which his, his family was living, uh, is now known to us today as the Round Hay Garden scene. You can see it on YouTube. It's a whopping two seconds long. Yeah. So make sure that you've got enough time on your lunch break to check that out. Um, <laughs> and it, it's actually really very impressive for the time and for what you for the technology that was involved. Yeah, I mean, it's, absolutely. It's, it's pretty neat. They remastered it now. It looks a lot clearer. And you can very clearly see it's he and, uh, and his wife and his son and also his uh, mother-in-law. And they are all dancing about and they're clapping and they're laughing. Of course, you can't hear anything. But, you know, you can tell by their movements that they're, they're having a great time. Uh, so it's kind of like the first home video. In many ways. And then shortly thereafter, his mother in law died. Ball hit him in the crotch. And then was the birth of the first England's funniest home videos, apparently. <laughs> no, it's actually far more tragic and sad. Apparently, a day later, his mother in law, who had been filmed, the very first one of the very first people on film, uh, died. Oh, God. On yeah. moving film. On, on moving picture. film. Thank yes. you. Yes, thank you for the clarification. Demon magic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's stolen. <laughs> I could just imagine that conversation between him and his wife. And it's like, um, you had to just get her out of bed, didn't you? She said she was feeling tired. She wasn't feeling well. And you had to take her out of bed to play with your new toy and dance and laugh in front of the house. She could have lived for a full month after this if it wasn't for this. <laughs> Louis. 
Louis. Sorry, just I had another one of those seances that we sometimes do where I, where I channel history. Sorry. Ooh, I'm back now. Um, you have a knack for channeling the spirits of nagging wives, don't you? <laughs> and the British, apparently. I don't know why. It's funny but... how that happens. <laughs> I love you, honey. Uh, anyway. Well, and even if they come from other countries, they still somehow manage to speak English to Eric. <laughs> how weird. How very strange. Well, the language um, of souls has no tongue. Yes. Oh. Uh, that was but... oddly poetic. <laughs> Louis Prince, though, uh, he went on and he continued to to film one more film, uh, A Gentleman Walking Around a Corner. And, you know, it doesn't seem very impressive today. It was, again, only about two seconds long, but that's what they had available to them at the time. And I'm sure for those people who had seen it the first time, it was pretty impressive. It was quite astonishing. Now, for you to look at Louis the Prince as the originator of film, and, and, you know, that is true. I mean, historians do consider that the first film, but when we're talking about, like, a film camera, a formalized film camera... We're really talking about one of uh, America's greatest phonies, actually. Um, Ooh, be careful with that one. Strong oh, words. I have no problem. In it. I did a report on this man in eighth, in eighth grade. So oh, boy. Clearly, Making I'm the expert Brian. here. He's <laughs> 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 leading scholar. He's <laughs> leading scholar. He has one very unacademic paper under his yeah. belt. <laughs> well, uh, at the time, I didn't know this. It's more or less just getting knowledge about him as a grown-up. But Mr. Yeah. Thomas Edison. Right. Um, Absolutely. He, he holds the American patent on the kinetograph. Right. Uh, from the late night or early eighteen uh, nineties, and that is at least um, the American first right film camera. We have to be very careful here because actually around the same time, around eighteen ninety two, in France, is where most historians acknowledge the for the real first film camera, the cinematograph. Yes. Which was a a fascinating deal because Edison had the concept for the camera down, but he never had a concept for viewing it. Right. And that's when you did the kinetoscope, which is uh, what we think of as the penny arcades, where you go into those boxes and you mm-hmm. put in, or the Nickelodeons, as they also know, yep. basically penny versus nickel, and you would watch the little films that way, through a little peephole in a box. They, that's where the term peep show comes from, actually. It was uh, not the derogatory, right. more dark connotation we know of it today, with adult entertainment but although more with, they did that as well of course yes they did well they quickly realized that there was some money to be made there <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> well, well look um, what we can do <laughs> interestingly enough the uh commercial sex industry has always been one to take advantage of technology whenever yes, it absolutely. Uh, whenever it develops for They've, thousands of years yeah, once you. new develop, technology develops they figure out how to make money off of it right away yeah. well, so, and weren't they weren't they one of the leading factors in the decision between blu-ray and competitors uh, that part I don't know, but really? that would be, that'd be that a fascinating piece of knowledge. So the cinematograph was cool because it was not only a film uh, camera, it had two modes to it. It would collapse into one apparatus for a camera and then expand into another apparatus to be a projector. How cool is that? Yeah. It was like a transformer. It was one of the first transformers. <laughs> don't give Michael Bay any more uh, ideas. Cemeta- Cemeta- <laughs> Uh, I think it was Simitatron was what his was the name was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he was one of the heralds from Cybertron years before Optimus right. came. He yeah. was one, he was one of the primes. Yeah. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can we please do a video of that? That would be hilarious. Oh, that'd be so funny. I mean, to be quite honest, it looks like a lot of the pioneers in very early cinematography really happened in France. I mean, we have, you know, not just in photography, but also in videography, right? We have a lot of these people who really took a risk and took a chance and tried to use that technology to do something great and amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was the French who developed the concept of showing it in a theater. 
yeah. using it as, a, as an entertainment venue, taking a medium that we already knew of, which of course was an auditorium for going to see any sort of stage performance, uh, and using that to display uh, this new phenomenon that you were talking about. You know, this reminds me of something, and, and I want to mention it to both of you, because I think it would be really neat for you guys to check it out. Uh, you, you both know that I'm a huge uh, space buff, right? You know, yes. not just astronomy, but also uh, manned attempts to get into space. And there's this really fantastic miniseries out there called From the Earth to the Moon. I've seen most of it. Have you seen the last episode? No. Because of all the episodes, I think it would be the one that you would absolutely get a kick out of. So, in the very last episode of of the series, I think it's like episode 12 or something, uh-huh. uh, they retell the very last Apollo mission side-by-side side with this filming, uh, this French film that was done called Voyage to the Moon. Oh, I know that. And Tom Hanks plays an actual character, whereas he had just been narrator in the very beginning and producer mm-hmm. for the whole series. Uh, he never actually plays a character in, in the series until... They get to the very last episode, and he plays this French uh, assistant to the director who is, you know, he runs the camera, right, and he organizes all the people, and and it was obviously a silent film, but it was so cool to kind of see this modern retelling of this old filming, the way they used to do everything, the way they created all these special effects and all that, but this was a real film that was made. Right, I mean, they were just making this up within the yeah. the realm of the miniseries for dramatic effect. Right, this is an actual movie that has been yeah. credited. Well, I think it's funny because you're talking about the French, but really there was a collaboration between the Lumiere brothers and Edison. They both kind of adopted two standards. Here's what here's the funny thing. Yes, there was competition, but at the same time, they both did two things that ultimately they decided maybe not officially to each other's faces, but th- it became accepted that those were um, standards. Edison, of course, used 35mm film, right? which is the standard up to this day for feature filmmaking. But even though we're getting into the realm of digital, almost all of the technology is based on trying to replicate 35mm film. Right. The Lumiere brothers had established a set frame rate of 16 frames per... Or 16 or 12. I think it was 16 frames I think it was per, 16, yeah. frames per second. Edison decided to keep that standard as well. Yeah. So even though Edison stole the patent... Um, and he actually created a company called the Motion Picture Patent Company. One of the first production companies in America, film yeah, production well, companies. Well, well, the patent company was for litigation purposes, was mm. to, to claim ownership of the patents and to basically get the legal weight behind it. He was wealthy enough to do it, of course. But you're right, he did start one of the earliest film studios. Um, and most people don't think of Thomas Edison as a studio man. But he really, the Edison company was massive. He had his hand in a lot of different cookie jars. Yeah. You know, he was trying to develop battery technology at one point. He was trying to develop all these... They're perfecting things. the light bulb, of course, and, and the light bulb, the popularizing light bulb. you know electricity which, in, in American homes, which modern scientists actually call it a heater, that <laughs> <with the laughs> happens to give off some light <laughs> because it gives off more infrared light than it does visible light. Right. Well, we're really showing our nerds right now. Right? Oh, we? absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Let's well, call nerds on history for a reason, there, people. Yes, indeed. I still can't help but think of the Lumineer brothers. It was Lumiere. Lumiere brothers. I was just going to say, so close to uh, to Lumineer. Yeah, to, to illuminate. Yeah. It's almost like they were destined to it. Like, they were born into this world yeah. and they had no other purpose but to work in film. When I think of Lumiere, <laughs> I think of, of course, the candlestick character from Beauty and the Beast. Yep. Right. Um, which I think was intentional. Intentional connection there. Well, it's because Lumiere is to light in mm-hmm. French. So Right. Duh. It's quite ironic that they have a, a film industry uh, business. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not funny. Yep. Indeed. Uh, Auguste and Louis, Louis Lumiere. I probably didn't say that right at all. Sarah's okay. a French person. Auguste. Auguste. Uh-huh. And Louis. Auguste and Louis. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. All right. Auguste and Louis Lumiere. There you go. 
Fantastic. Yeah. See, she's, it sounds pretty when she says it because she actually knows French. You have to, you have to do the e. E. Yeah, and they look e. much alike too. They both have the very big French mustaches from that period, <laughs> as well. We're showing this picture that you guys can't see. My apologies. Um, just imagine my great grandfather. <laughs> okay. <laughs> With no visual. I'm just imagining you old. Point. That's all I'm doing right now. My great grandfather, who was also a, uh, well, he was Belgian, but uh, you know he spoke French. He lived in France. He had a handlebar mustache. He used to wax it with turtle wax and had a little curl. Dude, rockin'. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, there's a little bit of a misnomer. Thomas Edison himself did not invent the film camera. It was one of his workers working under him, kind of like an engineer works right. at Apple. Right. Sure. An engineer develops one product, but it goes under the, the name, right? Right. Edison kind of had the inspiration and the idea, yeah. and it was actually the engineers who, who built it and made yeah, it work. So Edison's name's on the patent, but it was I've seen it referred to a couple different ways. One is uh, W.K.L. Dixon, but William Kennedy Laurie. Dixon is gotcha. his name. And he actually broke off from his company, from the, the Edison company. Right, I was going to say, didn't he develop his own He camera? tried to, yeah. It didn't really catch on, though. The, the mutoscope. Was mutoscope, yeah. Right, which is more of a circular drum design using sheets of paper instead of uh, film. Kind of an odd concept, but it would basically be this kind of weird flipping book design while it was rotating. And the rotating drum was what created the, the illusion of movement. Hmm, interesting. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure if it worked. <laughs> Clearly it didn't, because it didn't last very long. But moving forward, you were talking about these films and how elaborate they were. Yeah. And it's important to know that most films up until the early 20th century, in fact, almost all films to the early 20th century, were done in one shot. These very elaborately choreographed one-shot films. And that's actually kind of the beauty of them. It's like these moving paintings, in a yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's interesting, though, because when I keep thinking back to the scene from, from the Earth to the Moon... It's so funny because I see them all acting and doing their bit, and there's Tom Hanks, and he's grinding the wheel on the camera, right? And then it's cut, and he literally just stopped grinding the wheel. <laughs> and then everyone moves into a different spot, and it's like, okay, ready to go again. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, points out there for those who are playing the home game, when we talk about the cutting room floor, film was actually literally cut yes. and then spliced back together. Uh, when they were editing something out, right? Yes, mm -hmm. That totally blows my mind. I mean, that's just so crazy to think of that. But one of the first films to be attributed to formalized editing was The Great Train Robbery, which was in 1903. 1903, okay. So obviously we're still definitely in the silent era, right? And, yes, sir. You know, oh, yeah. And they had attempted to actually do audio recordings alongside these, right, and sync them up until you just never really found any success with it? There had been some experiments with it, but it was very expensive and very difficult to pull off. However, we keep in mind that these silent films, they were not truly silent. There was a live orchestra or a live organist who would be in the theater providing the score. It's kind of a cool idea. There would be a composer who would write a score for a movie huh. that they would give to a live orchestra and play while you were seeing this film. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it's kind of really cool. And I imagine there would sometimes even be a narrator who would be off to the side and just no. kind of... No, no, that would be you, the on-screen... Yeah, you would have the on-screen oh, cue Slugs. Cards. Really? Hmm. Yeah. I think I mentioned it on this podcast before and on the other one, but um, I have seen a, well, I think it was like six hour, um, six or seven hour long silent film that was done to a live orchestra. Yeah, you did tell us about yeah. that once, mm -hmm. and that just blows my mind. And it was, uh, there is, and that experimentation happened very early on, too. This yes. is the seventh silent film or no? This, yeah, silent film. This, yeah. Was, this was Napoleon, and it, the cool thing about that one was there were scenes at the very end that were shot in widescreen. Oh, wow. Which didn't exist then. So that would be like shooting on what, like a hundred and forty millimeter film, they, something like that. No, what they did was they shot it on three cameras, and they did three separate projections. But because they were all filming at the same time and then all projected at the same time, so what ended up happening was you had your center screen. 
And the two side screens would then um, appear because they draw the curtain back. And it was just really bizarre seeing this old-timey silent film. And you have a horse running from one screen across to the other two. And that must have been an amazing spectacle to see. It was an amazing spectacle to see now because understanding the time and then seeing, you know, how they were recreating the shadow of a flying bird by flopping a piece of cardboard around. (laughs) And so, like, to see that they actually did that was remarkable. I would hate to have been the person responsible for making sure all of that worked perfectly. Oh, right. I'm sure it was probably a team of people. Right. Yeah. Um, now, you're talking about From the Earth to the Moon, and I can't help, of course, think of the iconic visit to the moon where they, these people shoot a rocket, and, and we see the man in the moon, and then the, the rocket hits the moon right. in that, the eye. Right. That's, that's the movie that I yeah. that was referring and to. And that is referring to filmmaker uh, Georges Méliès. So, Georges Méliès, in Hugo, he's touted off as a... As a magician who is now kind of at the end of his career and it's mostly his film career is well over at this point he's just kind of living as a, as a shop owner in this big train station in paris not too far from the truth mm-hmm. there's some license with the train station business but he was in his shoe business who through happenstance fell in love with stage magic and met a magician and became a uh, part of the magic act he was a magical cobbler <laughs> well he gave, the, he, gave like the, the he gave up the shoe part of it <laughs> um but then when the cinematograph came out again was when he saw the lumiere brothers giving their presentation was fascinated by it and so he mm. bought a camera and started developing and he bought this cool little greenhouse in paris and started making all these movies and the greenhouse is great because it would be natural lighting oh yeah right and he made over 200 films. Wow. Yeah, of yeah. varying lengths. And again, I keep thinking back to that ep- that episode that I was watching, and that was one thing they were always screaming about, is how the, the clouds were always covering the sun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was the, that was the number one yeah. issue they had with their production, was the, was the lighting, really. And that's the one thing I found pretty amazing about Martin Scorsese's take on it, is there was a, a great amount of respect to that part of Melier's story. Mm. That they, they even got the greenhouse down to like almost the, la- the, the finest detail from, from photos that they, they're able to retrieve. Wow. And you can get Melier's films on DVD too. As of a few years ago, they became available. I mean, he really was a magician and what he was able to do, but to bring it to the screen, that was, that was pretty impressive. But yeah. you said it has a tragic ending, a sad ending. It sounds like he's very successful at what he's doing. He was well, making hundreds un- of films. Un- yeah, unfortunately, what his tragic ending was just that, unfortunately, he made films that weren't financially successful at one point. Oh. And so he just kind of fell into decline in that sense. Um, the Hugo story references a fire that took place where it destroyed a good part of his inventory of sets and costumes. I don't see anything in my research that supports that. I think that was more created just for dramatic license. Interesting. Um, there is a bust of him in France that was given to him in 1931 that, that dedicates him as the creator of uh, a French film, basically. Hmm. It says, uh, Créateur du spectacle cinématographique. I'm probably butchering some of that. Oh, I thought it was lovely. For the most part, it was okay. Yeah. Oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> He was also one of the guys to experiment with, with color film, too. But not color in the sense that we did it. He would actually paint mm-hmm. the film cells. And that's how he's able to get... If you look at the image of the Impossible Voyage when they're, when they're journeying to the sun, the sun was not yellow because of chemical treatment. Though they could have done that with certain chemicals to create like pink smoke or whatever. They painted the cells of film wow. by hand. That's pretty wild. It is. Yeah. Hmm. And the paint wouldn't have been melted by the, the heat of the lamp behind it. It was, it was fine. I don't yeah. think so. They may have had to repaint, I would yeah. imagine. If you mm. get a chance to see Hugo, a lot of these films are um, t- exhibited in the film. They show There's a whole showcase yeah. sequence where they show Melier's films. They really are breathtaking uh, when you consider the amount of detail 
uh, that went into these. And the fact that they pretty much got most of these in one shot, right? That's amazing. So they actually have to like they actually had sets that moved in and out so that they could tell the story. It was very very creative, very very. Uh, I'm gonna have to check it innovative. out because I've heard of Hugo and I've I've you know heard it's uh, it's great praise and it's good reviews and so I, I think it's about time maybe I uh, I check it out and, and it's family friendly too I think your girls mm-hmm. would love to watch it too cool very yeah. good. And it was it was a very it was a very solid movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is it live action or is it animated live action it's live action hmm. yeah interesting yeah of course silent films caught on pretty well in the United States um, particularly among America's foreign immigrant population because it was cheaper entertainment than going to the theater. Sure. So um, that's where the term Nickelodeons came from. It was like a nickel to get into the theaters, too. Um, It was also due largely in part to the amount of green slime that was dropped onto the audience. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's true. Though they didn't have you can't do that on television, they had you can't do that in a theater. (laughs) (laughs) That's television. (laughs) I think that should be the episode title, You Can't Do That. Uh, and, and of course, I'm I'm rushing a lot of the facts, but no, it's around the early 19th century that you see the film studios start to form. The film industry eventually moves down into Los Angeles in the early 1920s, I want to say, mm-hmm. at this point. It originally was actually from, anyone know? The Bay Area. It was the Bay Area and New York were the two places Weird. where the film industry was, was thriving. And huh. Charlie Chaplin was one of the people who helped move it down to Southern California, and Sarah knows why. Funny thing, well, I don't know if I know why, oh. but funny thing is, is that Charlie Chaplin's original studios were actually in my hometown. Mm-hmm. Which is? Fremont, California. Fremont, California. Fremont? Fremont, yes, California. Indeed. If you go into the Niles Antique District, where actually my first job was, there's actually like a mural to Charlie Chaplin. You see um, signs and and artifacts from SNA Studios, which is what his, his studio was, and um, you can see tons of locations where he used to film. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And the funny thing is, of course, when you're making films, you need lots of workers who are electricians and carpenters and all these different fields. Well, uh, at that time, even though, of course, LA was part of the state of California, it was not very developed at that point. So, Charlie Chaplin and his menagerie moved down to LA to escape labor unions to prevent having to um, deal with all that, oh, that, that makes sense. bureaucratic stuff. And literally, Southern California, if you think about what the influence this has, one of the biggest cities in the country owes itself entirely pretty much to the film industry because otherwise there wouldn't have been enough commerce to go down there if there wasn't a reason to, to, to go down there in the first place. Right. Fishing can only bring you so much. <laughs> right. Or orchards for that matter, too. Yeah. You know, um, as a side note, too, look what happened to Orange County. Orange County would have been a giant orange orchard if it hadn't Walt Disney and never yeah. decided to build a little theme park called Disneyland in Anaheim. So, Very Which true. wouldn't have ever happened if there wasn't a film industry to inspire him to work down there in the first place. Can you imagine the OC without that influence? <laughs> it's just it's a farmer story. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be like Salinas. <laughs> yeah. Teen angst while picking oranges. Right. Yeah. I love you, and I want to be with you, but... I gotta help my pappy pick the oranges. <laughs> it would be like a series of Steinbeck novels. That's what it would be. Pretty much. And then it was around 1927 where the film industry really rocketed and changed because two big things happened that year. Do you guys know what they are? Please tell us. Well, I know you know one of them. Go ahead. I'm going to say the era of the silent film was kind of out, right? Now they were starting to have talkies show up. Right. And do you guys know the first movie that was? I do. I know you do. <laughs> Al Jolson's The Jazz Singer. The Jazz Singer. And do you know the studio who released it? Oh, God. 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Warner Brothers. Yeah, it wasn't MGM. No, Warner so. Brothers. Yeah. It wasn't uncommon for you to hear someone singing mm-hmm. on film, but the big deal was, of course, when Al Jolson stopped singing, that he talked. They actually talked, yeah. And everyone could hear what he was saying. It was like, oh. Yeah. They had finally perfected the technology of synchronizing audio with film projection at the same time. I believe that was the first recorded instance in America of somebody saying, no way. <laughs> right. <laughs> I might be making that up. You might be. Um, yeah. B- before, you, before you move on, mm-hmm. uh, something I really want to mention that I thought was fascinating and, and just shows how quickly, in just a short amount of time, the film industry could really explode and take on. Mm-hmm. In 1905, uh, Harry Davis opened up the very first one of these Nickelodeons in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. In 1907, uh, the Saturday Evening Post reported that the daily attendance at Nickelodeons had now exceeded 2 million people every wow. single day. That is a two-year period. Keep that in mind, this is also mind. the only theater probably in that in that city, too. So, Well, not only that, but I mean, they're talking about, they're talking about Nickelodeons around the entire country. Oh, wow. Which, at one point, there were as many as 9,000 in the United States. That's crazy. Yeah. Obviously highlights just how crazy people were for movies yeah. and silent movies at that matter. Now you're talking about something else. Now you're talking about the, the actual talkie. Totally. Once the film industry really takes off and you get to the... I mean, you, they have it in the silent film era, really. Because the film industry becomes more legitimized and it becomes more the common folks entertainment. And by common folks, unfortunately, in this case, I'm referring to middle class or upper class white people in the United States. You start to see another change. You don't just have Nickelodeons anymore or just standard movie theaters. You start to see movie palaces being developed because they wanted to up the cultural value of film. And there is one or two in the Bay Area that are still around. Mm -hmm. Actually, three. But two that still function primarily as movie theaters. Um, You have the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto, which has a museum built into it, a little gallery of old movie posters. Gorgeous gallery. Uh, And they still have the old, most of the old design. They they make... uh, extensive effort to keep that restored as close as they can and they show old, old movies there all the time it's really cool i um, love the stanford theater yeah it's an amazing I absolutely theater love it uh, there's also uh the castro theater in san francisco mm-hmm. is a major one and then the california theater in downtown san jose was originally a uh, movie palace that was eventually restored back to its original uh glory and now it serves as both on a theatrical stage space as well as a movie space and our san jose film festival cinequest shows a lot of films um in that space yeah talk about nostalgic flashback just now you know when my sister turned 16 and got her license Mm -hmm. um her and i would go out and drive around and we go out on these little adventures and she used to take me up to the stanford theater all the time and you know i was like uh i was 11 years old Mm -hmm. 11 or 12 and she was taking me to go see hitchcock films during the summer and all this stuff and i was like i never even sat down and watched a black and white movie before yeah. Yeah. and now i was watching it on this great big screen in front of me in this great big you know this this palace really is what it is like it's just like walking into a royal palace it's pretty very immense. ornate right and very oh, yeah. very striking very opulent and what i find fascinating too is if you go to la and you drive down hollywood boulevard there's if not the remnants of it there's still a couple of movie palaces that have been re-restored uh disney recently re-restored the el capitan theater and they now use that as their big premiere theater for all their movies uh, of course there's man's chinese theater which originally was grauman's chinese theater they also had grauman's egyptian theater uh as well two different themes yeah. what what what, what? <laughs> yeah really <laughs> two different themes for their movie palaces um and unfortunately those are pretty much the only ones that are left uh they're at least from some semblance of that era and it's kind of sad because now you go to the multiplex now, and it doesn't. The one word that does not come to mind is opulent. It 
comes it's very calculated in how it's designed yes and and no and i will i will argue a little bit with this just because when i was growing up the two theaters in my hometown i want to say there were like maybe four or five but the two that were you know closest to me and were the easiest to get to they were kind of rinky-dink they were like 70s style whatever when the first like century 24 screen theater opened up it was like you walked in just like look at these seats with these super high bags and the, oh my god the arms move and like what the heck no. so that and so that totally that changed things and now that's become the norm yeah i mean if you compare it to a theater that's run down a little bit and we have second run theaters mm-hmm. in this area too um Comparing the two, yes, I would definitely say that the more corporate one would look more opulent. But if you compare one of those to a movie palace, it's a really different. Oh, yeah, but I think one is also classical architecture versus streamlined. So right, but we are in a world where things are meant to be more streamlined anyway. So that's kind of sad, though. Um, but, you know, I will say that it makes sense that we would now treat film so very differently when we give it these opulent palaces, right? Right when we started introducing uh, sound and actual spoken word into our films. A little um, bit beforehand. It was happening in the height of the silent era as well. But once they become more grand, then they were, you know, full-length films, right? Not just you walk into the Nickelodeon, you sit down for 30 minutes, and you see four or five different little short films, maybe a train going by or something yeah. like that. Now it had a story behind it. Now it had a real real meaning to them well and the interesting thing is is because when you look at early film when it first came out anyway it was barely even cons- it wasn't even considered an art in fact the government ruled that it was not an art and that it was a form of commerce hmm. and that was a decision made in 1915 in a case called uh, the mutual film corporation versus industrial commission of ohio it was a complaint about you know quote-unquote censorship because of i guess the free speech in in ohio's um, constitution um, was very close to the to the u.s one so it was ended up just determined by the supreme court that movies are not art that however was overturned in 1952 luckily yeah but even then that was actually not even the first act of censorship that actually happened in 1897 was the first act of censorship can you guys guess what the content was it was pornographic nope there was a woman's ankle exposed. Or <laughs> the church elders. No, um, it was uh, it was actually a prize fight. It was an exhibition of a prize fight. What? Yeah. So it was in the state of Maine, and um, they actually deemed that it couldn't be shown in film because um, at the time boxing and prize fighting was generally illegal, and well, so it wasn't yeah. even the violence. It was just that it was illegal. So. Um, and Although it, the violence, I'm sure, played a part because if you've sure, seen those I'm old sure. school prize fights, uh, yeah. they just beat the person to a bloody pulp. Right, right, right. Um, and then some other states kind of followed along that. Um, wow. And then again, the 1915 uh, Supreme Court ruling, um, which then was overturned. But there's several remarkable moments in Hollywood history of of censorship, and in early early years, um, in 1922, the the MP. AA or what would become the MPAA was sort of founded. So it was originally Which stands for what? Uh, Motion Picture Association of America. Ah, that's what I thought. Which was originally was it was named that in 1945, but originally it was the Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors Association. Yeah, which is pretty much what it still is today. Yes. And it was kind of just a, a trade and lobby organization. Yeah. That's that's what it was meant to be. The important difference is it's still censorship, but it's self-censorship. It's not the government censoring you. It's right. these guys choosing to censor themselves right. to prevent the government from inter- intervening into their business. Basically. Interesting. Yeah. 
So um, when this Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors Association was created, it was headed up by a man named William Hayes, who, funny enough, was actually started off being a U.S. Postmaster General <laughs> and then somehow got into the movie biz. Well, Postmaster General was very much a throwaway cabinet position. Yeah. You, just, yeah. you name your closest friend, basically. But usually the person who you were was the president's campaign manager became Postmaster General before they became chief of staff. So, right. Yeah. From what it says here, it says that he derailed attempts to institute federal censorship. And so he kind of was more about the self-censorship of movies. Um, But in 1927, he compiled a list of subjects and kind of a whole bunch of, you can't do this. And it was called the Hayes Code. And um, Mm -hmm. it was, yeah, yeah, it was pretty freaking strict. And, you know, again, at this point, it was still considered a business so it, very, very interesting things that you can, couldn't do or you couldn't say. Um, you couldn't... You couldn't curse, for sure. You couldn't curse, but you couldn't say Jesus, Christ, God. Unless you were doing a biblical film, of course. You couldn't say... I guess so, but yeah, you couldn't say... Um, no, then you had to say G-Man and the big guy upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't say hell, you couldn't say damn, you couldn't say S-O-B. Like You, you like, couldn't say the letters S-O-B? No, you couldn't. U-S-O-B. You couldn't say the letters. You couldn't show, um, so this is kind of weird. It says, the technique of murder must be presented in a way that will not inspire imitation. (laughs) How general is that? So in other words, somebody walks off screen, you hear this kadunk, and they're dead. No, you could, so you could show murder, but you couldn't show it in a way that it would. So you couldn't show a new and creative way to kill somebody. It's funny, though, because when you think about it, you think about somebody like Hitchcock, who is the master of doing this. Mm Mm-hmm. It actually inspired a more creative way of depicting that yeah. in a way that is actually more terrifying than sure. seeing it take place. And just for our listeners, and more so for me, uh, what time period are we really kind of narrowing in on? You said this, this is was... The, this is the late 1920s. This was totally in effect throughout the 30s and I believe the 40s. Interesting. Yeah. And of course, what was going on in the 30s was the rise of fascism. Mm-hmm. And what was going on in the 40s was our involvement in the Second World War. And I certainly know that movie theaters across the nation were being repurposed, not just to show films, but also to show propaganda films and to show right. uh, newsreels of the war and things of that yeah. nature. And you, and you did have the Red Scare happening in the 1920s, not but most people misconnect with McCarthyism, but the original Red Scare because of the spread of communism in Russia and in the, the Eastern Europe. Um, they had some pretty other interesting things that they couldn't show at the time. Um, you couldn't directly present or explicitly present a method of crime. So smuggling, theft, anything that would encourage or give anybody hmm. a how-to manual interesting. on how to do anything like that. Um, with sex, um, you had to be really careful, clearly. Um, you can't. You couldn't suggest any sort of scenes of passion, you know, anything more offensive or, or anything, you know, horrible like, um, like rape or even a seduction or anything like that, um, unless even, it was completely necessary to the plot. And even then, you had to be very careful on how you presented it. Even to the extent where storks' wings were clipped. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you couldn't do any suggestive dancing. You had to be very careful about that. Um, you couldn't have any ridicule, ridicule thrown at um, any faith. The flag had to be shown very respectively. You had to, you know, be respectful of America. And so, at least four times per film. <laughs> at least four times per film. Exactly. And so, yeah, it, but especially when talking pictures came into play, the public was really afraid of of how could this 
um, adversely affect our culture. Oh yeah. Um, and hence why it was so important to, uh, to have this sort of thing. And, um, scary new medium really, but you know, it's amazing that the film industry survived such strict rules because I can, I can imagine myself at the time coming out of the silent era, having so much freedom, so much flexibility, being able to, to express myself in so many new and creative ways that all these ideas would come rushing to my head as soon as I had the ability, the technology, to now have the spoken word accompany my films, only to eventually have that pretty much taken away from me. Yeah. It must have been very demoralizing. It must have been extremely difficult mm-hmm. for these early filmmakers, directors, and producers and to to create these films and to still create amazing masterpieces, which they yeah. did throughout the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Absolutely. They, they and, did. In 1934, there was a man named Joseph Breen who was um, appointed head of the production code administration which was kind of part of the mpaa and he actually had the power to rewrite scripts wow and it actually became a huge deal so he could change um scripts and scenes and he just ended up pissing off a lot of writers and directors and major moguls who were trying to have their stories told of course no one wants their story to be messed Mm -hmm. with it was pretty hard for the film industry to get away with certain things there's some stuff they did get away with, um, which we would have a kind of a problem with today. One was the idea of uh, what we call vertical integration. Mm-hmm. It applies to different economic models, but as far as the film industry concerns are concerned, the studios had almost complete control of every aspect of the film, from production to exhibition and distribution. Paramount Pictures, for example, would have a chain of theaters that they would play their movies in, and they would only play in those theaters, of course. So they controlled every single bit of it. And it wasn't until a Supreme Court ruling in 1948, the United mm-hmm. States versus Paramount Pictures, where vertical integration was was made illegal, uh, that the film industry could not have an, uh, a monopoly on all aspects of mm-hmm. film. And by doing that, they also opened up a whole opportunity for theater owners to create a flourishing business. Though there's now, ironically... Because the MPAA, they're now very much closely knit with the film uh, studios. Uh, they're called NATO, uh, not the National, no, not, not not the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the National Association of Theater Owners. <laughs> Wait, what do movie theaters have to do with the conflict in Bosnia? <laughs> exactly, more than you know. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, um, another interesting thing came up in the 1920s, though. Do you guys know what the, the term creative geography means? I have a feeling um, you're about to tell us. I believe it's what Craig Ferguson uses on his show when he uh, highlights the Sea of Borat right next to Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> Eric, I am shocked that you don't know what <laughs> creative geography is. Stupid. Clearly, Sarah has never seen Craig Ferguson before. It's one of his ongoing jokes. It's quite hilarious. Um, are you upset because my father is a cartographer? <laughs> no, I'm upset because your favorite show in on the planet uses this constantly. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Creative geography is where you shoot multiple locations, but you make it look like one location oh. on film. Oh. And this was a technique that was developed in the 1920s mm. um, with sound stages and combination of on-location shooting. Doctor Who, of course, does this when they're shooting outside the TARDIS and inside the TARDIS, right? Because the right. TARDIS is this massive ship space, but only looks like a small phone booth. Please right. call box from the outside. This was a technique that wasn't developed until the 1920s. Hmm. So if you think about it, film had been in existence for 30 or 40 years at this point, and they had never thought, oh, maybe we could just shoot them in two different locations, and the audience will just know that it's the same location. (laughs) We kind of take that for granted, because now we think, oh, we'll just, we'll just, we'll make it work. We'll just shoot it this way and shoot it this way, and they'll never know the difference. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, well, I mean, despite all the censorship that was going on, obviously film was still innovating, right? And and not just in technology, but also in techniques, right? And they were efficient, too. They could crank out a feature film a week. Wow. Yeah. But this is also with, keep in mind, SAG did not exist at this point, so there was no Screen Actors Guild. Right. Um, actors were literally owned by the studio. Mm-hmm. You had a contract with it. And they would do trades. They would trade this actor for this actor for one film. Hmm. But, kind of like baseball teams, almost. Yeah. You were owned by the studio. You would work 18-hour days, which you kind of do now, but, but not as good of treatment. And you would just crank these movies out every single day. And uh, unbelievable how, it, they, to this day, they have not been able to match that efficiency since... All these regulations came into place where, you know, you're talking about fair treatment. And, and the efficiency, wow. however, was a little bit of a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. If you look at a lot of the um, 1950s musicals of kind of the MGM golden era and stuff, they were doing a lot of yeah. musicals at the time. And um, there are definitely a few songs. They talk about this a lot in the special features of Singing in the Rain, if you guys um, pay any attention to that. But um, a lot of the songs that they were using we're kind of rehashing and reformatting songs that had already been done. Yeah, they're um, just like putting new lyrics in or tweaking the tunes a yeah, little bit. So yeah, so content was kind of getting reused. But it's funny because you bring up MGM. There was a conflict in um, schedules oftentimes, and two films I can think of right away are The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wizard of Oz, first color major motion picture? No. no? Incorrect. I guess I, I don't know why I assume that, but no, first most popular one, of course. Oh, okay. That, but remember, but 1939, Boss, right? 1939. There have been films prior to that that exper- had experimented with color. I think Secret Garden actually was the first one, but never quite with the with the grandiose effects of the Wizard of Oz. No, I mean. not with the, the deeply saturated colors of it. Uh, but the funny thing about this, going back to this, these tight film schedules, um, is that the Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind have in common is that they're directed by the same person, Victor Fleming. Victor Fleming, because of the crossover of film schedules, actually had to leave The Wizard of Oz early so he could start directing Gone with the Wind. So his assistant actually finished directing the movie, but he never got credit for it. Wow. Wasn't there that famous uh, outtake with Judy Garland and one of the scripts had gotten mixed around from Gone with the Wind? She's looking at Toto and she says, damn it, Toto, I don't give a damn. (laughs) No. No, that did not happen. Did not happen. (laughs) Wow, I'm just making things up left and right. There are, however, actually scenes that were not used in The Wizard of Oz. There's an entire song that was not used in The Wizard of Oz. songs, actually. There was a reprisal of uh, Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead uh, after the Wicked Witch of the West is killed. And then the other one was The Jitterbug, which actually is still referenced in the movie, despite the fact that the scene doesn't exist anymore. That's true. The original footage um, has been lost, but they do have home video home hmm. movies um, of people who are on the set of so you can get kind of some semblance of it and the uh, special editions there's a recording editions, of it yeah there's a recording of the audio because as all film musicals were at this time they recorded the audio before they did the video filming of it um, so what they've done on some of the special editions DVDs and Blu-rays of, of The Wizard of Oz is they sync the audio to photos of um, hmm. the characters and these home movies to kind of give you a semblance of what the number of might have looked like hmm yeah, my father loves The Wizard of Oz because it was, it was uh, released the year he was born. Oh, wow. It's his birthday movie. That's cool. Yeah. So let's jump forward a little bit because I want to talk a little bit about how film really evolved and changed once those restrictions were lifted off. Because it seems like in the 1960s, and this now makes perfect sense now that you've, you've kind of enlightened me and, my, and, our, and our listeners, movies really took a huge dramatic switch. 
You know, you you see movies like American Graffiti. You see movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest. That'd be seventies, more specifically. Yeah, but what I mean is, still post that that censorship no, it, era, it did, it did definitely change it. Well, you're also looking at post McCarthy era too, right? Um, in the fifties, not only I think you know after after the Hayes Code was no longer in effect, you had you had McCarthy, Senator Joseph McCarthy, who um, had a in effect a blacklist of. Hollywood writers, directors, actors, etc., um, people just that were involved in, in movie production in general, um, who were suspected communists and would, you know, thus be forced out of work. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, I mean, audiences were kind of losing their taste for standard studio films. You know, I mean, the 1960s had done, it was iconic for these saturated movies with you know, Sandra um, D, of course, mm-hmm. Cary Grant, Doris Day. Doris Day as well, yeah. But it was also the birth of movies like Psycho and The Birds and all these amazing Alfred Hitchcock films that were these psychological thrillers. True, but Hitchcock had also been making films since the 40s. So, um, yes, they had definitely, like, the shower scene from Psycho would not have been able to have happened under under the Hayes Code at all. Mm -hmm. But you really don't get to see this revolution in film until the 1970s when you start to see people who are trying to independently make movies or get their films sold because they have some sort of connection. And that's when you start to see filmmakers like Francis Ford Coppola come out. And Dennis Hopper did doing Easy Rider. And Easy John Cassavetes, yeah. yeah, who really paved the way for people like Spielberg, who most people don't know his first feature film was Ambling Along. That's where the term Amblin for Amblin Entertainment comes from, is because that was his first feature film. Hmm. It paved the way for people like George Lucas and Spielberg and obviously numerous others to say, hey, I can make a movie. I can get enough money together to scrap a movie together. Well, and and production at that point was becoming easier. You were able to have, I mean, you had more more um, people using Super 8 home movie cameras. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my dad, who grew up in Southern California, lived down the street from a guy who was actually a stuntman who taught him how to, like, fall downstairs and do, you know, do this, that, and the other and inspired my dad to start making his own Super 8 movies, in which case he almost set the garage on fire. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and my dad was growing up in the 50s and and into the 60s. And then also with the whole sense of artistic liberation, free Mm -hmm. spirit, you know, definitely drug experimentation. A lot of that was giving people the wherewithal to start earlier to say that I have the technology here in my hand. Why not just start screwing around playing with some visuals playing with some storytelling and and going beyond that you know you start off doing your own um you know westerns in your own backyard with your your black hats and your white hats and then next thing you know you can involve into something much further and super eights were the most cost effective because they were the home Mm -hmm. movie camera and if you lit it right you can pull get off get away with making a short film or a long form film, but no, if you had a little more money, you would pay for 16 millimeter in that case and get a 16 millimeter camera, all the equipment necessary to get something that looked more professional looking, but not, you know, 35 millimeter was the most expensive film you could get. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine all these young kids growing up in the 40s, you know, going to see movies in the 50s and, and dreaming and thinking of themselves, you know, I could do something so cool. 
And now because they had the opportunity to play around with their own stuff and, and say, well, maybe I can do this. You have this whole, I mean, maybe that's where in the 1970s, so much of that, so much of those iconic films really come from is just this, this birth of, of dreams and ideas and visions that these people had that they wanted to finally bring to the screen that they could. Well, and, and even the topics, I think they wanted to touch and, and, and stories that people wanted to tell really kind of made a huge difference. Um, and guess who's coming to dinner? You know, yeah. being completely remarkable for the time, the story of a white woman bringing home a, a black man to meet her parents, you know, like that, that whole thing. Um, the Graduate, the the story of, you know, an older woman seducing a younger man, which granted was a book beforehand, but to, to make that more widely accessible. Yeah. I guess that's probably where what it really le- comes down to is why are you know you kind of asked the question before why are movies so important why why are we yeah. kind of obsessed with them now it's an easy accessible visual storytelling sure and guesses coming in dinner wouldn't have ever been made possible if it wasn't for the political shift in an mm-hmm. acceptance toward interracial marriage yes. right yeah it wouldn't yes. have been 20, 10 years before that it would not have been possible to not make that all. movie. It was a reflection of its of its time and the well, social and, movements in America and around the world. Yeah, a complete reflection of just the 1960s. So yeah, um, and I think that's what all film does. All film is always a reflection of its mm-hmm. time, even if it's riddled with censorship. It shows how filmmakers um, and writers dealt with those restrictions and understanding in that context. I think films are an amazing way to learn about history because yeah. you learn if you understand the context that the film was made in. Even if the story doesn't reflect the period exactly, you get to learn so much more about what was going on at that time because you learn about that context. Well, and, you know, I hate to, I, I think we kind of mentioned about bringing it up earlier, but um, Birth of a Nation, that one being a complete reflection of its time. And right. it's the reason why, I mean, that movie is still studied, even though it's absolutely horrendous in content. It's it's basically it's all awful. It's so all it's, it's racist propaganda. So for our listeners who yeah, who don't understand what we're talking about, can you guys go into a little more backstory yeah. about this? Um Birth of a Nation is a feature length long silent film. Um DW Griffith was the director of it. It was praised at the time. Woodrow Wilson has said and the, the sad thing of course is it's all unfortunately true. Uh was that that was him speaking of the film's content. This mm-hmm. is the president of the United States, mind you. Uh, who was a racist, total racist. The film is basically, to make a long story short, about a, uh, a freed slave uh, kidnapping a white woman and the Ku Klux Klan coming to the rescue. To, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Ugh. And um, to set up that whole drama, there's a scene where there's black state legislators. This is set slightly post-Civil War, during Reconstruction. The black legislatures in this, this are depicted basically like like animals. Uh, I don't mean like like they're behaving like animals, and rather they're being very uncivilized. They're being um, you, there's a, this contrast of white legislators trying to get work done, but uh, these black legislators being loud and obnoxious. And even though it's silent, you kind of get this that impression. Um, eating in the main chambers and all these socially unacceptable things at that time. And it's like we've already said, it's just a real slap in the face to any kind of progress that was trying to be made. You know. And of all the things that they could have censored at that right. time. And they didn't censor that one bit. That was praised. That was given. Uh, and anything that in that that would have been considered offensive could have been argued for the context of the film, in which case it would have been allowed. It's revolting. So, okay. So we, we've talked a lot about how film reflects its time, right? So we're looking at, you know, the the 1920s and coming out into the talkies and this golden age, right? And we talked about the need 
and many people, when you really understand what the 50s and films were being made at that time, was really a need to heal the country who had just come out of this horrendous Second World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, censorship being lifted off, and now the 60s and 70s being this free expression of thought and an idea. What the hell were the 80s about? <laughs> 80s, I think, if you want to talk about it, is a total representation of the bloated economic prospects yes. of Reaganomics, right? Oh, yeah. So what was the big deal about 1977? Star Wars. Star Wars. George Lucas. Right, right. And George Lucas wouldn't have done that if and it wasn't Elvis for... And Elvis died that year, too. Oh, sad. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and actually, Charlie Chaplin died that year, too. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it was a bad year. My parents were married that year. That's a good thing. Yeah, it is. Okay, cool. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So you have Star Wars. You also have... Just before, a couple years before that, Lucas wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for THX 1138. Mm-hmm. But Jaws was a slightly small precursor to that, too. Jaws is really the first one, because that is the first blockbuster movie, yeah. right? Made millions and millions of dollars. And then Star Wars really settles that in, because you got this big sci-fi extravaganza, which no one thought would succeed, because it was made for only $7 million, which in the, even in 1977 was a small amount of money. Um, everyone was like, this movie's gonna suck, this is gonna be like some late night movie of the week, because the plot seemed contrived and all this stuff. And then Lucas almost gave himself a heart attack working on these special effects to get him done in time. But when everyone saw it, everyone just jaw-dropped when yeah. they saw it. Just like, this is amazing! It got nominated for Best Picture that year. And thus... You really have the first major, like, now studios are like, okay, we can make a bunch of movies that are just like this. See, you might you say know? that the studios looked at themselves and said, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about it, it was really a rehash, because all Lucas was trying to do was remake the movies that he loved when he was yeah. a kid, which was Flash Gordon and uh, Alan Quartermain. And those are basically were Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Yeah. You know? It's true. It's very true. Well, and yeah. then if you go further into into the 80s, you know, talking about that, um, it was a lot more in the way of, of innovation. If you look at something like Tron, which... Computer um, graphics, right? Which I think was actually panned because of the fact that they, it was used computer graphics that it was considered cheating at the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there was so much more technology available and the things that were being developed. And then the idea of computers coming into play, and that opens up a whole other store, a realm of story to tell um, and having it be, you know, much more attainable and realistic. So I, I think the 80s, yeah, were just them having yeah. fun, creative yeah, fun. sure. And I, the very book that my computer is sitting on speaks of the works of Industrial Light and Magic, who, because of their works, really pushed filmmaking into the more contemporary era of being able to blend cool things like, hey, let's, even though Disney had been doing it for years, let's make it even cooler to make an animated character interact with a live-action character, like when you see Who Frames Roger Rabbit. Yeah. 1988, I believe, was that came out? Or I think so. Yeah. You know, I think of the 1980s, and I think of movies like Ferris Bueller, right? Mm-hmm. And I think of these teen coming-of-age movies and their abundance in the 1980s. Uh, and their tie-in, really, to music in the 1980s, because music in the 80s was a lot like that, too. And I just imagine film and movies and music just inspiring each other. Because you had the MTV culture, for sure. Music videos became a thing in 
the late, late 70s into the early 80s. I think 1980 was when actually MTV was um, first launched, 1980, 1981, I believe, something like that. And so, yeah, that was a whole other concept because it was doing short form film to music. And then you had um, a whole TV channel kind of dedicated to being a teenager. Yeah. And it kind of gave us what is now kind of gone into an even longer delayed, like adolescent period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it kind of helped define a whole generation. True. I think also, though, when you're talking about that integration of music into films, contemporary music into films, that also draws its, uh, itself a large part from the 70s, too. You know, Easy yeah. Rider was one of the first pro- movies to do, you know, rock music in a movie just that was just contemporary rock music. Right. You know, and I think had that not been the f- baby steps in the right direction, Ferris Bueller would not have been as easily doable. Um, no, 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 sure. But I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is, is like the the whole concept of not just our here we have a story let's put rock music into it and like have that really add to it and really reflect the you know the time and the culture and the characters etc but here i have a song i'm gonna set a movie to it that was that was the remarkable thing i find about um about the 80s at that point true yeah yeah and you see more experimentation with that. Though the 80s videos were, some of them were wildly different. Some they were, were still like, figuring it out. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you look, if you were to look at George Melier's early films, yeah. and you look at early 1980s films, they are going through the same growing pains, except yeah. that one, the one in the 80s were way more badly dressed. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that. And some really bad dance choreography in some of them, too. But that, oh, but that's the other thing. That's a whole other shift. Because of music video... And music films yeah. performing became more important. Yeah, it did. You wouldn't have Justin Timberlake today. You wouldn't have Lady Gaga. You wouldn't have these people if it wasn't for the pairing of film and music. Is film representing music? Now, to bring us forward a little bit, when I think about the 1990s, I think about the end of Bush Sr.'s administration. Mm-hmm. I think about the introduction of Bill Clinton and a, and a light or a lighter, more lighthearted look at government, and then a more serious look at government, where we really started to pick apart what we were doing before. Uh, and I start to really see now a shift in movies. I see a lot of political movies of the 1990s. I see a lot of... In the mo- late 80s, too. Yeah. In the late 80s, but I'd say even in the 90s, it really shifts forward. Yeah, it takes a big jump forward. the Jack Ryan films. Yeah. And- the 80s had a lot more in the way of the economic stuff, like Wall Street and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. and, and definitely a representation of a certain archetype. And then, yeah, in the 90s, you have something more like Wag the Dog. So You do? I also think about a lot of dramedies, right? Mm-hmm. Comedies that were now trying to integrate something a little more serious coming out of the 80s, where it was a lot of more slack-stick, a little bit more gross, a little bit more, you know, laugh for the sake of just getting a laugh out of the audience. Now it was something that was kind of a laugh, but with a meaning behind it. And I think they had the, they definitely had a certain heyday in the 90s. But again, there's, there's traces of that back from the earlier decades, Animal too. House. Yes. Animal House. Yes. <laughs> and then I look at something like the past 10 years. And I cannot clearly define it because it's almost like I see all these different parts of the past hundred years showing in themselves in all sorts of different ways on the film. I would argue that's just a cultural shift from the turn of the century because it takes at least a decade for a, d- a century to really define, begin to start to define itself, if, if not more. Well, what do you think, Sarah? I think that when you're looking back at anything as a cultural representation, if you're looking at anything as far as art goes, especially when it comes to 
movies and TV shows, et cetera, where so much can be considered throwaway. Mm. It's kind of like music. You can go back and and I can just off the top of my head list several songs that came out in the 1950s and the 1960s. There's plenty, even though I consider myself pretty well versed in, in those decades of music, there's plenty I haven't heard. Why? Because it was not good. <laughs> and so it kind of got lost in the fray. Right. And stuff got left behind. I think when you're kind of reflecting back on a lot of stuff of the 70s and the 80s and early 90s, you're looking at the stuff that was really good. It was the stuff that stood out. What are we going to remember of the 90s? Are we going to remember Wag the Dog or are we going to remember A Kid in King Arthur's Court? You know, (laughs) (laughs) there's so much available. So, yeah, right now it may be a little hard to kind of figure out what... Because you're seeing it all live, you right. know? When yeah. you go back and you reflect reflect on it and you kind of see, okay, which ones are the ones that are still being talked about? What's still really important? I think one thing that is pretty remarkable right now is that there is a lot of value in old Hollywood currently. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are doing a lot of self-reflection on the entertainment industry currently. And I feel like that's also um, a lot of people doing self-reflection on um, things as a whole. Uh, What's something that we kind of value right now? Celebrity. I will say that one thing I do think of is the last decade in film, uh, comic book movies. Yes. Because they very much so. They finally got their legitimacy because they had tried so many times for years to make it a, um, and you could always be successful with the big names, right? Mm -hmm. Superman and Batman were always big ones. But then X-Men yeah. came out. And really, actually, Blade, before that, in 1998, came awesome out. Such a awesome movie. He had an obscure Marvel character become a box office success. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, wow, we can now do this. We can now take these characters and run with them. And that's a whole other podcast. In fact, we've done that episode already. Um, Nerds on film. Yes, that was our first episode. <laughs> when I think of the 2000s, that's what I think of right away. As well as things like American Beauty. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, I think that was 99, actually. Other than that, you're right. A lot of it is vacillating. Uh, I also think of the movie Garden State, but that's... Yes. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, because that I think something like Garden State kind of pushed what is now devol- like was now evolved, devolved into the hipster movement. It, that the, the, was, the shins particularly being part yeah, of that soundtrack. Yeah, that, that whole soundtrack, that whole kind of indie feel to it. And the, again, something that could speak to a whole age group. Sure. Like um, Juno, Napoleon Dynamite, all in that same vein. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, and I think Garden State was the one that really kicked it off. Well, you know, I, I know we've been talking for a while, and I don't want to drag this out too long, but there's one thing I did want to mention, mm-hmm. and that's 3D. Ah. So, do you know when 3D was first used in film? We did a whole episode on that with we Nerds on Film. We did a whole episode on 3D. Did you talk about the experimentation in the 1890s? No, we did not. We didn't go too far into it, No. In the 1890s, there was this real desire, this want to not just take these images that were now being produced, but to actually have them pop off the screen and be even more inspirational than they were. And what I found fascinating is just a few short years later, you know, there were attempts at using polarized lenses, which are now standard in creating 3D images in this revival, this this whole new movement of 3D. And of course, listeners, we're not going to go too much into this right now because we've covered it in a whole other episode of Nerds on Film, which I do encourage you to listen to. But I just find that it's fascinating just to take us back in time for a little bit to see that, you know, even back when <laughs> film had only been around for, what, two years? People were already thinking ahead and thinking, what could they do and, you know, it took almost 100 years before they reintegrated that early technology and brought it back now. And now it's got a whole 
rebirth and revival movement. And that's all I really wanted to say on it, though. And I really want people who who enjoy Nerds on History to go check out Nerds on Film and listen to that episode on 3B because it was... Uh, that was a fun one. It was a great one. Yeah. Well, folks, I have a proposition for you, for the two of you sitting here. What are you folks doing on the week of April 4th? I don't know. I'll allow you to check your schedules. Go ahead, please. We're going to assume you're free. So in the event that you are free, (laughs) April 4th through the 7th, I suggest that uh, we have another Nerdotomy get-together. Really? Yeah. You know, we all uh, went to the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum, which was super-duper fun, uh, and we had a great time doing a tour around there. What if we kind of did a little bit of a tie-in with not just Nerds on History, but also Nerds on Film, and went on an outing to the Stanford Theater? That would be amazing. There is a uh, double showing of both The Birds and Psycho. (gasps) Yes, at the Stanford Theater. I'm totally down, but can I show you a little story? On my 15th birthday, I didn't know what I was going to be doing, because I was grounded, actually. I was grounded grounded from everything. I got really bad grades my freshman year in high school. My dad told me I was going to the Stanford Theater. I didn't really even know what it was. Mm -hmm. I'd heard of it, but I didn't really know what it was. And he took me to a Hitchcock festival. And we saw The Original Man Who Knew Too Much and The 39 Steps that night. We saw a double feature, and it was awesome. It was totally awesome. It was not what I was expecting at all. I did the exact same thing with my sister. Really? Yes. Those two same films? Yes. Was it on February 5th? Because it might have been the exact, the exact same day. I do not remember. All I remember is those were the movies that my sister and I went to go see that time that we went to the Stanford Theater. And you were 15 or 14? I was probably around that age. No. You may have and I... We may have been in that same theater before we knew each other. That's, weird would that be? That would be totally weird. Well, even if we weren't, we still can be. And I, I would invite all of our listeners out there who happen to live in the Bay Area to come and join us. Uh, we will narrow down a date because it's any time between April 4th and 7th. Um, and The Birds plays at 730 and Psycho plays at 940 right afterwards, a double feature. So let's get back to you on the next episode and we'll narrow down a date and uh, we'll see if we can make that happen. Sounds like a plan, sir. Yeah, to pump this up on Nerds on Film. Absolutely. This has been, I mean, a really interesting discussion, talking about, in a very short period of time, what is now an art form that is officially 110 years old. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy to think that film has has been around that long now. If there's been any question of legitimacy at this point, I think it's gone. (laughs) Uh, The question has, has been answered. Film is so unique in that it has merged together pretty much every single art form you know you have music you have drama you have visual art uh photography you literally have it all put together and i think fashion design fashion design as well absolutely i consider that part of uh, when i say drama too but absolutely fashion design all those art forms come together to create one big work and that could explain partially why film has been arguably the most successful uh, in the short period of time that it's been around of the art of any of the, the other art forms um and I'm very excited to see what the next hundred years have to offer. I'm ready to have my holodeck. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I can reenact every episode of uh, Star Trek as James T. Kirk. I can do that in my sleep right now. I would so be down for for a holographic movie. Just You basically sit in a circle and then just all just kind of pops up in front of you. That'd be amazing. That'd be really cool. You just walk around while the movie's going on. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Really, really neat. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Especially anything relating to film. It's always great to have your expertise and input in the show and guys of course as we usually say don't take our word for it there is a number of resources you can go to to learn more about the history of film to right off the bat as we already talked about the academy of motion picture arts and sciences even though they are known for the academy awards their primary mission is to educate people about film history 
and they're work they're as they announced in the Oscars this year, they are working on a museum that's going to be completed in the next couple of years. Um, unbelievable Field and trip. yeah, and they have they have classes, they have like exhibits that they do, and of course the American Film Institute, even though they are also a film school, they are a organization that's designed to preserve and document the happenings of American film. Two amazing resources you can find, AFI.org and Oscar.org. Or you can also listen to our podcast. <laughs> listen to our podcast. Well, there's that, film. too. Uh, there's, also, <laughs> there's also a really great documentary series out there called The Story of Film and Odyssey. Uh, it was released last year in the UK. It's found its way to DVD. I haven't seen it in any HD format yet, but don't let that stop you. It's supposed to be quite excellent. It's 15 parts long, so it's definitely not something that you're going to sit down and watch in an afternoon. Um, but it details the history of film in a lot more detail uh, than what we were able to provide you in just this past yeah. uh, past hour. So uh, that's one option for you, along with, like Brian mentioned, yeah. so many other resources out and there. There was a PBS series in the early 90s, too called American Cinema, the history of film all the way from the silent film era up until the 90s. So Cool. Yeah. Well, folks, thank you for listening, and friends here present in the Nerd Cave, thank you for participating. Yes, indeed. And of course, guys, if you are interested in following us, you can please follow us on Twitter at Nerdonomy, and check out all the ways you can contact us at Nerdonomy.com and use our new listener feedback tool that is on our homepage. If you can click, you can give us feedback. Indeed. You guys have a wonderful week. Guys, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Pleasure is all ours. Yep, it was fun. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.